The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Jesus said, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. In the interest of uh, dietary variety this morning, we will not be having another sermon on bread. You may have noticed that the last five Sundays uh, in the gospel have been stories about, about bread and wine, Jesus' body and blood, but keeping in mind that all of Scripture contains the good news, uh, it's okay to preach on some of the other texts. So this morning I'm going to say something about the letter to the Ephesians, which, uh, which Tom read from this morning. Ephesus, uh, where the church uh, in Ephesus was, where the Ephesians were, was probably the most important city in the Roman province of Asia. And the Apostle Paul spent more time with the church in Ephesus than, in, uh, than the church in any other city that he visited, almost three years, all told. Now, though the tradition has long held that Paul wrote this letter from prison, most modern scholars think that it wasn't actually Paul for a variety of reasons that I won't go into, but rather uh, one of his disciples, someone who may have had a collection of Paul's letters in front of him and was familiar uh, with, with Paul's teaching. It also seems likely that other churches in Asia, not just the church in Ephesus, but a, a number of churches in Asia Minor would have received this letter, kind of a, a circular newsletter, if you will, that went to a variety of churches in Asia Minor. It's a lyrical and lofty letter. You may have noticed it as we've read it also the last five Sundays, segments of it from the, uh, during the last five Sundays. Unlike Paul's other letters, or whoever wrote this letter, there are not 
uh, specific crises to be dealt with. There aren't particular problems that need to be addressed. It's primarily a hymn of praise and thanksgiving for the work of Christ in reconciling the whole cosmos to himself, bringing together those things that were once far apart and bringing them together closely uh, in unity. So the first half is a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. The second half of the letter lays out some of the social and um, ethical implications for the church of what it means to live in a world that has been reconciled by uh, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The last verses that we heard today tell us that though this reconciliation has already been won in the heavenly places, there is still a mighty battle to bring to full fruition the victory that Jesus won. And the writer uses the striking image of a soldier in full battle regalia to underscore the intensity of this mighty battle. The writer may well have had a clear view of such a Roman soldier guarding his prison cell. So he might have seen this soldier kind of going back and forth during the course of a day. Soldiers such as these were at the heart of the so-called Pax Romana, an era of 200 years or so around the time of Christ of relative stability, stability that was held in place by the brutality and fear of the Roman war machine represented by a soldier like this. Now, it's not an appealing image to many of us, this one of the soldier. It may remind us of the Christian triumphalism of an earlier age, a sensibility that produced the hymns Onward Christian Soldiers and the Battle Hymn of the Republic, an age when the church followed the flag and committed heinous things in the name of Christ. And yet, I would say, that image still makes sense for us today in many ways. It is true that there is untold good that happens in the world every day. Yet it is also true that there are armies and mercenaries and juntas and warlords and thugs who wear armor, wear armor every day. And we know, without thinking too hard about it, that there are individuals all of us included, who wear the armor of pride, of fear, of anger. We're familiar with the armor of a smile or a lie that covers deep despair or defeat. There is particularly in the West the armor of consumption. Buying this thing or that thing will keep at bay the emptiness that's eating away inside of me. However you look at it, human armor is a sign of, it's evidence of despair, of estrangement, of distance, of brokenness, of concealment. God's armor, however, is different. Our writer exhorts his congregations to put on the whole armor of God. Not the armor of humans, but the armor of God. God's armor consists of truth. The truth will set you free, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. God's armor consists 
of righteousness. A righteous person lives in right relationship with God and with neighbor, respecting the dignity of every human being and of the creation as well. God's armor consists of peace. In Martin Luther King's famous phrase, peace is not the absence of violence. It is the presence of justice. God's armor consists of faith. Another way of saying trust, of giving your allegiance, your heart even, to someone else or even giving it to God. God's armor consists of salvation, that experience of being loved beyond all measure in your deepest being and then handing that love over to someone else. God's armor consists of spirit, the spirit of God stirring and teaching and strengthening hearts. The armor of God builds up rather than tears down. It encourages intimacy rather than distance. It seeks reconciliation rather than alienation. Now, it's true and a bit ironic in some sense that God's armor also makes us less safe. Ask Paul or other early Christians whose godly armor prepared them to pay dearly even with their lives, for their faith. Or ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you could, or Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote letters also from their prison cells. Letters full of irrepressible hope and courage, which have given hope and courage to millions of other people. You may know someone who wears God's armor, or at least parts of it, who takes risks to make peace or seek reconciliation. You may even recognize parts of this armor on yourself. We wear these garments only with God's help and only with prayer, lots of personal prayer and corporate prayer, where we ask, for these characteristics for ourselves and for others we're not meant to wear them alone we are meant to wear them together as the church of God and the purpose of wearing these garments is to do our part to reconcile ourselves to one another and to God through the power and example of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And while this armor does make us vulnerable on one level, on a deeper level, we become more and more secure. For by God's protection and by God's grace, the essence of who we are, God's beloved children of infinite value, infinitely loved, precious, that can never be touched, can never be changed, can never be harmed. Thanks be to God. Amen.